I think we're actually live. Welcome back to Ask the Compound, where we just did 10 minutes of a show for no one because uh, technology wasn't working. I think we're back now. All right. Yeah, I think it's working now. I think it's working now. Okay. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome back, Duncan, from a trip to Germany. Yeah, I'm having deja vu. <laughs> I feel like we already <laughs> did this. Yeah, yeah. It's like we already talked about yeah, it. Yeah, thanks, right. uh, thanks everyone, for coming out. Good to be back. I, uh, I already have been chatting about this now, but, yeah, got to drive on the Audubon, had a lot of fun, drove a M-Series BMW, hit, like, 118 miles an hour. It was a lot of fun. Happy to be back on the show with Ben, though. I was jealous last week seeing you on with uh, Bill, so... Did you get to watch from Germany? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I watched some of it. Okay. All right, today's Ask the Compound is brought to you by Bird Dogs. John, go ahead and throw up our bird dog picture from, from uh, Future Proof a few weeks ago. We're all wearing bird dogs here besides Nicole. You can see John and Duncan have kind of the plain color ones, which is just fine. Michael has more of the camo look, and I have more loud ones. This is what I like about bird dogs is that they're not afraid to go a little crazy with the designs. And I like these ones that got a lot of compliments on them. I wore them with this bathing suit. Very comfortable. Uh, bird dogs are great. And the great thing is, um, I guess I can thank climate change, but it's been like 80s here through October. And I've still been wearing my bird dog shorts. <laughs> Thought I'd have to change over to... <laughs> I mean, before the, before the world comes to an end, I think we're gonna be able to enjoy some nice weather in Michigan. Uh, the great news is with bird dogs, Go to birddogs.com slash ATC for Ask the Compound. And we're still giving away this white bird dogs dad tech hat. Again, just birddogs.com slash ATC or enter ATC in the promo code. Uh, you're never going to take those bird dogs off. Trust me, I, I, I wear a lot of them. My wife asked the other day, why do you have so many of these? And I said, because they're comfortable and I love them. Leave me alone. All right. Yeah, and they're our beloved sponsor. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, thanks to everyone in the live chat for sticking around. Uh, you missed a live show with Duncan and I just for the two of us for 10 no, minutes. You had a really good answer to that first question too. So yeah, we'll do it again. No, let's so. run. I, I got a lot of practice. Let's run it we'll back. We'll do it live. Okay. This is, this is why I could never be an actor though, because it feels disingenuous to do it more than once because you feel like you're not giving it your all from the, like I could never be an actor and do multiple takes. Right. I would have to be in only Clint Eastwood movies because he only does one take, right? Yeah. That's no, it. Yeah. He's famous for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it feels weird. It feels weird. Also in the chat, you know, the chat was going Going great. Like, everyone's talking. I thought we were alive. I, I, I had no idea. So. They were conversing like nothing was wrong. So, yeah. all right, let's do it. All right, here we go. Uh, first today, we have a question from Kevin that I feel extra good about reading now. Uh, Kevin writes, I've always wanted to do my own, not to brag, so here it goes. I'm 33 and have $300,000 spread between a Roth IRA, Roth 401k, and a taxable account, all in VTI and VOO. I own my home and have $75,000 cash. I don't really understand bonds other than when rates go up, they go down in price and vice versa. TLT, uh, the 20-year bond ETF, has crashed since rates started going up in 2022. Assuming we're near the end of the rates, uh, rate increase cycle, even if rates stay higher for longer, why shouldn't I put $50,000 in TLT? If I hold it for a few years, it stands to reason that rates will be cut when inflation concerns are behind us or the Fed has to respond to a true recession. How high can rates actually go from here uh, and then they say this just doesn't seem that risky long-term. All right. Famous last words from Kevin here. Nice job on the not to brag. Let's look at the chart, John. Long-term bonds have crashed in a big way. So this is TLT, the 20 to 30-year treasury bond ETF. It's down over 46%. This includes income, which hasn't been very much in the past few years, by the way. If you include inflation on here, we're talking about like a 60% crash, 60% plus 
in about three years, which is kind of crazy because the period from like 1950 to 1981, long-term bonds were down, I think, 70% on a real basis, inflation-adjusted basis. That took 30 years. We've done what happened in 30 years in about three years. And if you look at this chart, I counted, I think, seven separate corrections of 10% or worse since the inception of this fund in the early 2000s. And interest rates were falling for most of that period. So long-term bonds are no joke in terms of volatility. Obviously, the crash right now is another way of saying that yields have gone up. And so if we look at the characteristics of this fund, John put that on. Uh, this is the characteristics of TLT. I highlighted two, two variables here. One is average yield maturity, which is now over 5%, which is, seemed unfathomable, I don't know, 24 months ago that you'd go from 1% to 5%, which is kind of crazy that you can lock that in. Uh, the other one is effective duration. So Kevin is right. If bond yields rise, prices fall. If bond yields fall, prices rise. So what duration tells us is that relationship between interest rates and bond prices. So with an effective duration of 16.3 years, what this would tell us is basically for every 1% move in this bond, rates up or down, it's going to move 16%, 16.3% or so in price. Not exactly precise, but pretty close. So rates fall 1%, you're up 16% plus whatever yield you're getting, which is pretty good, right? You hold it for a year, rates fall 1%, we're talking about like a 20-some percent gain. Now, if rates were to rise 1%, you're down 16%, right? So, the, you know, <clears throat> I guess it is worth pointing out that the maturity for this is a long time. That, that's part of the reason the duration moves so much. But, um, Here's, here's what I say. This seems like a, a nice setup for bonds. Like Rates have come up a ton off of zero to five. If we go into recession or the Fed cuts rates or economic growth slows or inflation keeps coming down, you would expect rates to fall. The timing is the thing that can bite you on this one, though. So like, what if, I don't know, what if economic growth keeps coming in hot or people decide the world is burning and I'm selling treasuries because government debt is spiraling out of control and rates go to seven before they drop back down to three, right? Can you sit through a 35% drawdown in the meantime? You can just get smashed. And what happens when yields do drop? Do you sell out after they hit 4% or wait till they get three? Like, what's your out on this? Because that's the difference between a trade and an investment, right? Maybe rates kind of stay where they are. They stay in a range, but TLT is very volatile in the meantime. So I just think, I understand the thinking behind the trade. I just don't think it's as easy as it sounds. So one of my favorite books Winning the Loser's Game by Charlie Ellis, who is one of my favorite communicators in all of finance. He had this analogy that investors, there's a difference between pros and amateurs. And he used tennis as an example. So there was a study done that showed most tennis players, right? They strike the ball down the line. They have this laser-like precision. And there's these long rallies. And finally, someone hits it in or there's an unforced error. But most of the time, professional tennis players don't make errors. And if, in fact, he said that it's been estimated 80% of the time they hit winners, the professionals. But amateur tennis players, they're double faulting it into the net. They're hitting it over. They're hitting it across the line. 80% of the time when they lose a point, it's because of an unforced error. They hit out of bounds or they made a mistake. And, and that's the idea is that minimizing mistakes is just as important as hitting winners and in investing, especially for people who uh, aren't professionals or aren't hedge fund managers. So the point is, like, how do you avoid beating yourself as an investor? Personally, I like to have rules in place to guide my actions. I try to minimize mistakes by avoiding market timing. I don't like to make short-term bets on the market and try to predict what's going to happen in the short term. And then I just don't like to have investments in my portfolio that don't fit my personality or investing style. And one of those is I've never been a fan of owning long-term treasuries. I've looked at the data, the historical data. They had a wonderful run from 1980 to 2020 as rates were falling, and they were one of the better investments. You got almost the same return as you did in the stock market with way less volatility. It, it's been a, a wonderful bond bull market. Uh, and if we see double-digit yields again like we had in the 80s, I'd be happy to 
take part in those again. I just don't think it's worth the volatility. I'd rather I'd rather be paid for volatility where it makes sense, and that's in the stock market as opposed to the bond market, where I think for me that's keep the keep it safe, have some income. Um, and you can also earn higher yields in intermediate term bonds right now, and I'd have to try to nail the trade of directions of interest rates. So if we look at the historical returns for long-term bonds, the case becomes far less compelling. So this is annual returns going back to 1926. So this includes the bond bull market. Even with the bond bull market from 1980 to 2020, long-term returns for or annual returns for long-term government bonds are 5% per year. For five-year treasuries, far less duration risk, far less volatility and drawdown risk, it's 4.8% annually. You get double the volatility in long-term bonds in basically the same returns. So, John, if we look at the next one that shows the, the drawdown profile, this is just since the mid-2000s, early 2000s, you get way bigger drawdowns in long-term treasuries than you get in these three- to seven-year treasuries, which is essentially five years. So I just, I just don't think it's worth it for that volatility risk for me. Now, I'm not going to try to talk you out of a trade if you're trying to if you're going to go into it with eyes wide open it's just it's entirely possible long term bonds are setting up for a great trade here the fed pushes too hard we go into recession whatever it is but i think you really have to nail the timing for a trade like this to work i guess the good news is is that like you don't have to participate in every trade or investment opportunities because it seems so juicy like what's what's the point of this money in the first place i'm just i'm taking 50 grand and i'm going to put it out here just to make like what's your end game for the investment i guess what's your time horizon and risk profile not just like, is there a great opportunity? Like you could have a great investment opportunity, but if it doesn't fit your personality, your investment plan, I don't know. I think it's it's tempting fate to try to time something like this and it opens you up to more mistakes and unnecessary risks than you you probably think. I, I have a couple of follow-ups here. So Kevin says, how how, how high can rates actually go? Um, like, what, what do you think? Like, what's the answer to that, the TLDR to that? I mean, the thing is, if if nominal growth is going to be five or six percent, five or six percent yields in thirty-year bonds are not out of the realm, not out of the ordinary, right? It just it really depends on. And we had this period in the '80s and '90s where rates were much higher than inflation or growth. Obviously, the difference then is that they're coming down, and now they're going up. So it feels a lot worse, right? So I I, it, I don't know. Could I never say never in the markets? Like I would have never expected yields to go from one percent to five percent so fast, but. Could the economy continue to be strong and we get and the government spends a lot of money still and we get six percent nominal growth with three percent inflation, then I don't know, could rates stay at five or six percent for a while? It's possible. I guess you, you never throw these things out, I guess. Do you think that uh that people should stop calling bonds the safe part of your portfolio? Because that's what people like me, non-finance pros, people have always said you, you know, you ask nine out of ten people, what's the point of bonds in a portfolio? If they're gonna say, oh, that's like the safe part of your portfolio. After this, you know, recent chaos in the the bond market, I mean, does that really need to be kind of restated or rethought? Because well, it depends what kind of bonds we're talking. I think that's what people have realized is that oh wait, yeah, long term bonds are great when you have a rush to safety or a recession and yields are falling, but when yields rise, like these are yeah, these are not safe because the duration is thirty years. You know, is right. oh, is the maturity is thirty years, the duration is sixteen years or whatever. That's a long time. So short term bonds, yeah, they're still pretty safe. I think anything less than you know one to two years is still pretty darn safe as in terms of volatility and, and losing money. But for longer duration assets, yeah, there, there is a risk there of inflation and higher interest rates. But okay. no, but certain types of bonds in cash, are still, and I think that's the thing people have to realize that maybe you just have to be a little more conservative and not go so far out on the risk curve. Yeah, I think a lot of young people, uh, you know, bought TLT back a couple of years ago and were like, oh, that's my responsible money. The rest of it I'm putting in all these risky stocks. 
and then they're like, wait, I got cut in half on yeah, when, the, when you the see how, part of my portfolio. Yeah, you see how volatile the stuff, and, and, and again, I, I was saying this before uh, before we had a huge crash, that these bonds are too volatile for me. So yeah. we, we should mention that like the doc this week for questions was bonds, 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 yield, yield, yield. People are really into this stuff right now yeah. and really curious about it, which, which makes sense because I think it's more exciting and interesting than the stock market right now. For sure. Okay. Speaking of which, here's another one. Yep. Oh, next, another bond question. Uh, I'm I'm a married 30 year old who is just a normal IT guy. I max out my 401k and Roth 401k, but I like to invest in things that reward me on the other side. I use Betterment to do this. For example, I allocate money every week to hopefully buy a vacation home in five to seven years. I'm interested in your bond discussion from Animal Spirits, as my whole life has been stocks, stocks, stocks to this point. I'm not sure how to buy bonds or if I should. Could I buy bonds to achieve yield on my money for goals that have different timelines? I love the idea of regularly saving like this. Like the whole idea of, like not just, I'm going to invest for 40 years down the line. I think that's one of the reasons young people have a hard time saving for retirement in the first place. It's like, I'm going to let future me worry about that, not present me. So I love the idea of saving for a goal like this for five to seven years. I I think from experience, I can say you're not going to regret saving for a purchase like this. The good news is, you have options galore when it comes to yield these days. We talked a lot about Series I savings bonds in the past. Uh, throw those out the window now. Uh, yields are like 4.3%. You can do a lot better. I think a lot of people, too, who put their money into these Series I savings bonds are taking them out now and t- paying a yield penalty, so it probably wasn't even worth it to begin with, especially when you consider the, the website and stuff. But uh, I made it 13 you, months with mine. So, okay. Yeah. So you paid a little penalty. You could also do T-bills, which are paying still paying 5.5% or so, or an online savings account like Marcus. Mine's 4.4%, which still feels low considering the yield environment. I'm waiting for a bump from them again. However, this person has a defined time horizon of five to seven years, right? These short-term solutions come with reinvestment risk. T-bills and online savings account rates could fall on the short end, then you're stuck missing out on today's current high yields. You want to lock them in, right? So you actually can lock in, lock in higher rates, which is like an asset liability match, right? Like I want to invest for five years. So I checked bank rate today and I'm seeing five-year CDs for like four and a half percent. So you can lock them in for five years, get four and a half percent. Not a lot of liquidity in CDs. You can take them out early. And again, like I-bonds, you'll have to pay a penalty, but that's not a bad not a bad case. Five-year treasuries as of this morning when I checked are yielding 4.7%. Seven-year treasuries are about the same. You could get a three-year treasury for like 4.9%. I think if you really wanted to lock in and match it up, the five-year probably makes the most sense. You could buy these through a broker or Treasury Direct. It's pretty simple. I've never personally purchased individual bonds just because I think it's easier to buy ETFs. It's just it's 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 less work. You don't have to think about it as much. Uh, you could buy the three- to seven-year ETF we talked about in the last question. It yields around 4.9% yield to maturity. Any total bond market index fund right now that tracks like the, uh, the aggregate, is like 55 to 5.6% average yield of maturity. That's pretty good. The one problem here is that these are constant maturity funds. So a three to seven year treasury ETF is going to stay three to seven years. So as you approach your goal and get closer, your your risk and duration is a little further out. So it's it's away from your um, desired goal. So I think the good news with a fund like this is rates can go higher, which you'd see that price decline, but then you'd also immediately reinvest into those those higher rates as those bonds come off. Um, this is why some people prefer individual bonds, right? The thing is, there are now ETFs that you can buy that are act like individual bonds, right? So iShares has an item called iBonds, which sounds like something Apple created, but you can actually pick the maturity of the bond lineup. They actually have a thing where you can set up a bond ladder, right? So it matures every year, every 24 months, or every 36 months or whatever. 
and you can line it up with, I th- I'm going to buy this vacation home five years from now, so I'm going to buy the bond that matures in five years or seven years and it matures in seven. And so you could do that or you could build a ladder and buy them as you are saving on a weekly basis, right? You can you can slowly but surely build it up. Um, so if you just search iBond ladders, it's, it's a pretty cool little tool and website that they have. I don't really think you can go wrong in today's yield environment, whatever you choose, but if you wanted to lock it in, that, that's probably the thing is so you don't have to worry about short-term rates falling if there is a recession or the Fed cuts or whatever. I just think you have to understand the trade-offs with options like CDs and short-term bonds and T-bills and then longer-term bonds. But you have options galore these days you didn't have in the past. I didn't know about those. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it makes sense they'd be able to do stuff like that in uh, the mechanics of an ETF. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So I think they have one. I don't know if it's every six months or every 12 months, but you can you can sort of pick the end date and and invest in it as you get close. So there's one that's probably like, I don't know, 3.75 years or something right now, whatever. So it's a pretty cool option. If you have, if you know the end date of your goal where you have to spend it, that's like matching your assets and your liabilities. Since like since we have bonds on fund. the brain today, uh, should you, is it true that you should never own bonds in a taxable account? No, because if you need to spend the money, then you don't want to put them in a tax deferred account. So it, it I mean, you're paying income on those bonds, of course. It may, yeah, I guess you could think of munis as well if you want to, have a little, uh, have the taxes not take as big of a bite out, but the yield kind of, you know, is taken into account there. But no, if you want to spend the money, then you have to put it in taxable. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, that's just another thing that I've heard people say before is like, oh, d- yeah, don't hold them in, in a taxable account. Another bond one. And this next one is one I think we've never gotten before. So this is an interesting one. Yep. Okay. So this one is from Paul. You guys have talked about the statistical facts and the human factors of what to do with a lump sum if the ultimate goal is to get into the stock market. But what about bonds? I have about $30,000 to put towards a house and a car down payment that I won't use until spring or summer of 2026. If I plan to use a few assorted bond ETFs, would I be better off putting it all in ASAP or dollar cost averaging? All right, let's bring our resident DCA expert You hear dollar cost averaging and lump sum, and you immediately know. Julie, (laughs) who writes our wonderful blog of dollars and data, the book Just Keep Buying. Hey, Nick. I don't think you've even ever written about this. Have you? You you think you've done a piece about diversified portfolios with lump sum or dollar cost averaging? Have you looked into bonds before? Yeah, I, I did this for like basically every asset class I did for Bitcoin, gold, bonds, and basically across the board. Like going earlier generates a higher total return. I mean, this has been true across every asset class. I mean, you assume. I mean, for risk assets at least, you assume they're going up over time. If that's that's the whole reason you're investing, right? Why would you be putting money in something you expect to go down? Doesn't make sense. So. If you're expecting something to go up over time, the sooner you do it, on average, you tend to outperform, right? It's about probably, 80% of the time, et cetera. Probably even more so with bonds, though, right? Because so I looked at this before, and the S&P over the last 100 years is up like three out of every four years on average. I think I mm-hmm. found for five-year treasuries, it's like 88% of all calendar years are positive, and so, which makes sense because bonds don't go down as much because they don't go up as high as stocks. So, And you're just clipping the yield and income, and, and you know, so most of the time, bonds are up in a given year. So it would make sense that you wouldn't want to overthink this and you just want to put the money into that bond and start earning the income. Yeah, yeah. I think in this particular question, let's say I was in this person's shoes. The only thing I'm actually like slightly worried about in just the smallest way is like, we know the debt ceiling is good through, I think, January 2025. And this guy's talking about, I'm just going to lock my money up till whatever, spring 2026. In the event that like the US actually defaults and there's madness, that's the only real risk I see of this strategy. Outside of that, do you want to like, make a yes. call, Nick? No, call I'm, not make, I'm not making a call. I'm just well, saying, like, we're, I'm we're only buying treasury bills. Through, yeah. 
I'm only buying T-bills through next December. I mean, there, there aren't any that are for next December yet because they're only one year. But like once my T-bills roll over this December, I'm buying them through next December and then playing a wait and see game because after that, I have no clue. Well, the, the other thing is, like in the last question, I talked about the options you have now for yield. If you're really worried about something like that, you could diversify your yield sources, right? I have some in an online savings account. I have some in T-bills. I have some in a bond ETF or whatever it is that is corporates or munis or something else. So I think you can, if that's really a worry, that the money's not going to be there for T-Bill. And, and hopefully, if that ever really did happen, and I don't know. I think we maybe. have bigger problems on our hand, honestly, if, if yeah. the U.S. defaults. And, but and it's, it's, yeah, and I mean, I, so you, I would put it in now. Here's the thing. Like, here's the worry about putting it in now. You can now say rates go up more. Now your bond is, you have a crappy bond. There's better bonds you can buy. So the price of your bond goes down. But that's okay because you can sell that crappy bond and reinvest it at the higher rate. So you're still going to get the same return. So if you have a, a bond that's paying 5%, you're going to get 5% even if you sell early, but you just have to reinvest that money, right? So bonds are all mathematically, like I would say, perfect in that way that you're going to get, whatever you buy it, you're going to get that return if you just wait through the end of it, right? The question is, do you want to wait for that? That's right. it. Can you deal with that volatility in the interim? And especially with a shorter term goal like this, I would think DCA would be your enemy as opposed to your friend because, you know, unless you invest in something that's really risky and it crashes in the short term, uh, your your goal is not that far. So you, sh you shouldn't be taking that much risk anyway. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't DCA bonds. I could, I could see the arguments for stocks and risk assets and we can get into that. But for bonds, no, you, there's no need for that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do another one. All right. Up next, we have a question from Kyle. I was looking at my personal balance sheet the other day and thinking about whether my personal leverage race ratio, total debt to net worth, is at an appropriate level. To clarify, I'm not just referencing the, uh, I'm not just referring to leverage in an investment portfolio, but overall leverage, mortgage debt, auto loans, student debt, margin loans, etc. cetera. Uh, in the financial planning world, is this ratio something you look at with clients? And if so, would you consider a healthy range? For context, my leverage ratio is currently about 0.6 to 1, uh, and my only debt is my mortgage. Is this too low? Do I have room to lever up a little more? I've never actually thought about this before. Yeah, same. Because, so they asked about how it, how it works in like the financial planning contest context. I think in the financial planning world, you look at income to debt maybe in terms of how much you're spending out of your portfolio, how much money you're making, and it's like how much do you bring in and then how much do you spend? And your debt service ratio or your debt payments fall into that second category. And it's just, does your income, is your income big enough to cover your debt payments? That's the only thing I'd be worried about. Not what is your debt to your assets or net worth or whatever. This yeah, feels like a good time to say shout out to all my uh, fellow student loan people making payments again. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the good news is yeah. you're paying that off and it, it'd be going down. But John, throw up the chart here that shows... U.S. household debt service has a percentage of disposable income. The average since, I don't know, the 80s is like 11%. It's much lower than that now. It's a little below 10%. So I don't know. Nick, have you ever looked into this? Like what, what is a, a reasonable ratio? Yeah, so I haven't, but I agree with it. It's all about the income, right? You're looking, because what is debt? Debt you have to make payments on, right? You have to make payments on your debt. And the question is like the risk you run into is not being able to make payments and defaulting and it hurts your credit score, all the, the nasty things that happen there, right? So the real issue is like, I don't care about your debt ratio. It's like you could have a debt ratio of 10%, but if you have really high interest rate debt, that could be worse and you'd have a higher payment than someone who has 50 or 60% mortgage rate debt or debt, maybe say from a mortgage, that's a really low rate. So you got to, it's the rate that matters and the size of the debt. It's kind of, there's multiple variables here that are moving together. So I would say like, I wouldn't focus on whether you should lever up more. It's like, 
think about how much risk you're taking now with like your debt payments relative to what your income is and and look at that. And what's the right ratio? This is going to be different for every person. Are you single? Do you have low liabilities? Do you have a family, a large family to take care of a lot of other liabilities? Like all those things affect how much risk you want to take. So I'm generally not a fan of debt. Of course, like I think there's like mortgage debt's useful. Uh, I think education debt can be very useful if you can get if you can get into a, a job that ends up you know benefiting you. But it, it's it's always case specific. You have to look at it individually. So I can't I will say give you a generalized answer. My my outlook on debt totally changed in the in the early 2020s. I took out as much debt as it possibly could when rates were three percent or whatever, and I, I think I'm glad I did. But Again, I had to think in terms of payments. And, and there's this old budgetary rule that's like the 50-30-20 rule. And it's like 50% of your income should go into necessities, which is basically housing, transportation, healthcare, that sort of stuff, other regular bills. 30% on wants, and then 20% on savings or paying off debt or whatever. And I think, what is it? 30% for housing is typically a pretty good rule of thumb. Like, that's what you want to pay. And I can think you can think of that in terms of debt, too. So I would look at it more in terms of your budget as opposed to your net worth. Because you're right, the, yeah, the exactly. high the high cost of debt right now has to be taken into account way more than the the actual amount of the debt. Yeah, exactly. In in New York, I think housing is more like eighty percent of your budget. You know, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, but you don't need a car, so you're you're fine. True. That's that's how you make it make sense. All right. Last question. Okay. Right. Uh, last but not least, we have a question from Stefan. Uh, I've heard you discuss dollar cost averaging (DCA) is how we're going to abbreviate it. Uh, the easy scenario to discuss is the 401k. I DCA because I get paid and contribute monthly. The more complex scenario deals with a self-directed IRA with an established balance where taxes and cost of transactions are not an issue. If we take the current bear market and compare two situations or portfolios, portfolio A has $200,000 fully invested, portfolio B has $200,000 with $100,000 invested and $100,000 in cash. An advisor might tell Portfolio A to sit tight. You can't time the market. Safe advice. An advisor might tell Portfolio B to start DCAing uh, that $100,000 over the next six months or year because you can't time the dip. Safe advice again. Here's the rub. With one costless trade, Portfolio B could look exactly like Portfolio A, be fully invested, and be told to sit out the market swoons. With one costless trade, Portfolio A could go to 50% cash and look like portfolio B and start to dollar cost average. I've never heard of someone selling half their portfolio just to start dollar cost averaging it back in. If that is the best financial advice, then why not go all cash and start dollar cost averaging back in? I love this question because it feels like a logic puzzle. And I'm pretty sure that it might be a syllogism. I remember that from college. It is kind of like a dorm room discussion if you ever talked about markets when you were in college, I guess. I think he's twisted his brain into a pretzel a little bit here overthinking this. So the Charlie Munger rule number one of compounding is never un- interrupted unnecessarily, right? And Nick, of course, your work has shown that dollar cost averaging works over the long term and is a pretty good strategy, but lump sum beats it. So the, the point is, yeah, you don't want to take a portfolio that's fully invested and sell out of it to dollar cost average because the market might do A, B, or C over the next few months. The point is to keep that money in and let it compound no matter what happens. So I think I think he's overthinking it here. You don't do dollar cost averaging because it's a better strategy. You do it because you kind of have to, or you have behavioral reasons for it. Yeah. I think the other thing here too is, yeah. The other thing to think about with regards to this is like, okay, it's not a costless trade. I mean, it costs nothing because there's no transaction cost to move into like, to go from hundred percent stock to 50, 50 stock and cash. But like, 
with that same argument, why don't you just go 100% cash? Why don't you go and take out debt and lever? I mean, you could you could take this. I mean, I don't think it's a costless trade in that sense. You are making a pretty big statement about the future, right? When you go from 100% stock to 50% stock, 50% cash, you're basically market timing. That's what you're doing, right? You're saying, hey, I think the market's going to go lower, right? That's the only way. DCA only outperforms, or what I call averaging in, so slowly putting your money into the market, only outperforms in cases when the market's dropping, right? So, if you had an if you had you know 100k in cash and 100k in stock i would say you know on average the the right thing to do across history is you put that 100k cash in right now because on average the market's going to go up and 80% of years you'd be right right versus putting it in every month over the next year right however the only time where that's not right where that would have been the wrong move is when the market goes down so you're basically saying the market's going to keep crashing and that's why i want to dca in but i'm saying if you're going to do that why even dca why not just wait until the bottom because that's you're going to you already think the market's going to crash why not predict the bottom or something else right so it's a, you can see how the logic breaks down pretty quickly once you make you make a little bit of a sin and then you start going beyond that and you can start kind of getting into a space where you're now in all cash and then all of a sudden the market rips back upward and you're not involved at all and so yeah, and i've seen keep, this happen we saw this happen during covid yeah you keep trying and to do so this it's rough and to see that. you get yourself in trouble and this is like if i invert like munger your 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 whole idea about spending the portfolio too is you want to put the lump sum in if you can early, but then you want to spend it slowly like a dollar cost average. You want to so essentially what he's saying here is you take a lump sum out of the portfolio, and that's the that's the the faulty reasoning here is like you're taking it out at one time and putting it back in slowly. Like the time that you take it out could be the wrong move too. So I think yes, you want to just if it's in there, you leave it in there and you let the long term of the market take care of it and compound. And don't work against you and, and overthinking it and, and trying to dollar cost average. Most people do that again because they get the money and they they put in money out of their paychecks or because they do it for behavioral reasons and don't but mathematically and logically, you'd want to put the money in right away if you can. It, Speaking it, yeah, of if you're worried about sense. it, then take a few months. I mean, the difference between putting it all in now and putting it over three months is so minuscule, it doesn't really matter. It's like 2%. Right. And like, okay, $100,000, two grand, who cares? But now you're not, you're, it's less risk, right, you're taking, so you can sleep at night, that's fine. But like, if you take a year, two years, five, it's, the longer you take to get invested, that's where you really start to see the pain. It's the foregone money you would have had, right? So that's where I kind of recommend people, hey, if you're taking over a year, don't do that. If you want to take a few months, even six months, go ahead. It's not going to really make a difference in your life. That's so. true. Speaking on behalf of the dumb money, um, I, I would just say I've I've gotten myself into more trouble with dollar cost averaging over the years because I don't notice how much I'm down. It's like I'm putting in a set amount into like a certain stock, an individual stock, right? And I I like wake up one day and I'm down like 45% in a stock. Whereas if I just put everything I wanted to put into that stock up front, I probably would have sold it when I was down 15, 20%. Oh, because you're averaging down? Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's bad like over time. So I think that's another argument that I could potentially make for a lump sum kind of maybe saving. It would have saved me some losses probably. Well, you're talking individual stocks here. We're <laughs> right. talking about like right. the market. Well, you're talking yeah. about the market. And, and I'm Duncan, talking about individual stocks. Uh, just a, a tip, Duncan. Um, I recommend buying the stocks that go up. That usually helps. Yeah. So <laughs> See, I love a good <laughs> sale. You know? <laughs> so you average all the way down and then you sell it at the bottom. That's <laughs> right. That's, your, that's, that's how your you problem. tax loss harvest, right? Yeah. All right. Just uh, all right. Yeah. Just buy a lot of tickets. That's my book. Again. Just just keep tax loss harvesting. <laughs> all right. Can only carry over for so long. All right. Thanks everyone for their questions. As always, thanks for waiting for us through the technical difficulties. Nick, thank you as always uh, for your help here. Duncan, thanks, Nick. Welcome back. Yeah, leave us a comment. Me, thanks for everyone that. in the live chat. Remember, leave us a comment on YouTube. We'll check some questions there as always. Email us at the compound show at gmail.com and we'll see you next time. Thanks everyone.
listening to Ask the Compound. All opinions expressed by Ben Carlson, Duncan Hill, and any of their guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.